This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Stage, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. We're at the midway point of the federal election with three weeks to go. Three more weeks. Are you all having fun yet? Of course, an election is meant to be a battle of ideas, but in the modern age of marketing and on-point messaging, finely tuned by focus groups and engineered to not upset anyone or even to say anything meaningful, Australia's politics is hopelessly content-free, or so it feels at the moment, and frankly, most of the time. So are we, in fact, witnessing a presidential-style election, but unlike our American cousins, one without the spectacle or the hope? In this edition, we ask some fundamental questions about where our politics is, what role the media may have played shaping the very process it's reporting on, and can the media fight back or change? Joining us, we have two journalists with the perfect perspective to answer these questions. Damien Cave is the Bureau Chief in Sydney for the New York Times. Damien, welcome to Fourth Estate. And Michael Miller is foreign correspondent covering Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific for the Washington Post. So thank you both for being with us today on Fourth Estate. Um, Damien, this is your second federal election in Australia. And Michael, I think it's your first. Can I get you both to give me your big picture view on, on, on how we do it here? Damien, to you first. I mean, well, the most striking thing I think about Australian elections coming from an American perspective is how smooth and bureaucratic and inclusive the system is. I mean, I marveled last time and I marveled this time at the registration rate, at you know the way that voting works on a Saturday, complete with democracy sausages. And just the way Australians kind of take for granted the fact that, you know, nearly everyone votes and the system itself works. There's far less arguing about the system than there is about the politics and the policies and the ups and downs. And generally, I think that's a positive, even if there are, you know, occasionally some problems with how that goes, too. Mm. What about you, Michael? What are your observations um, as, as a newbie to the to the Australian election scene? Yeah, I mean, I think it's second all of that, but also the, you know, compressed time frame is a huge difference, of course, like in the United States, we have these elections, which seem to almost be never ending, you know, one ends, and then the next one begins before you know it. So they become kind of year, year and a half long processes with, uh, at least for presidential elections with primaries that take months and, you know, with many town halls, and then months of kind of big glitzy debates and lead up to the election. Whereas here, of course, it's, you know, it's basically a six week gunshot and then it's off. And, uh, and I think that contributes to kind of the uh, frantic uh, pace and, and also the way that the 
you know, the, these races are covered here in Australia as well. Yeah, certainly, at least the official bid. There is the faux lead up to the uh, election campaign itself, which can often go for many months. But to many watchers of Australian politics, the comment that you hear quite often is that they're becoming more and more presidential with every federal election. Does it does it look that way uh, to, to you, Damien? Uh, you know, I mean, I understand that point that it becomes about the personalities and and, you know, the leader in particular and whether or not people like him or want to have a beer with him. Um, so there is some of that, but but I still do think that you know the system is set up to to kind of diminish that you know, and so whether it's ranked voting, whether it's the compressed schedule, you know, it's just less of kind of this never-ending saga and drama that is the American election system, or to some degree even the French system, where there's a presidential system too. So I don't know. I don't. I don't think it has slipped too too far into that. I think Australians maybe romanticize the past, you know, perhaps justifiably, but it doesn't strike me as an extremely presidential system. I mean, the compressed timeline, though, I do think is interesting because I actually often wonder, you know, while on one hand it's beneficial and perhaps better than the forever system of the United States, it's so short that I'm not sure there's a whole lot of deep contemplation uh, about either the leaders themselves or about the policies. You know, sometimes it feels, at least to me, kind of rushed. Mm-mm. Well, we're going to get into actually into that issue of, of how uh, policy is actually covered. But just an observation. I mean, it seems, seems to me that we were perhaps more presidential in decades gone by when we had the very, very big characters, you know, the Bob Hawks and the Paul Keatings and and even to a certain extent, the John Howards, who, you know, may not have been a Paul Keating or Bob Hawke type personality, but certainly have had major gravitas. Michael, I wonder whether from your perspective, you think that there's anything vaguely presidential about the campaign as you as you're seeing it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would think so. I mean, again, this is my first Australian federal election, but, you know, talking to analysts and, you know, others, I do get the sense that this is perhaps more of a presidential election than than recent past elections here. And I think part of that is a function of Scott Morrison having quite a presidential administration. You know, he has really put himself forward um, on many occasions rather than having, you know, ministers speak at press conferences, he's really kind of made himself the face of his administration, almost in a American presidential style administration. And so I think that contributes to not only this election, but also this sense that it's kind of a referendum in a way on him and how he's handled the past uh, three years and, uh, and some of his perhaps missteps. So I think that all contributes to kind of the sense that this election is perhaps a bit more presidential than, than other ones. And do you think that that diminishes the focus on policy and increases the the, the the kind of partisanship built around a leader? I mean, perhaps, but I think at the same time, you know, because it is focusing on on him and some of his missteps, that also gets at his policies, right? So, like his handling of the the Black Summer bushfires, of course, raises questions about his party's approach to climate change. So I think there is a risk that that type of uh, presidential or personal focus, focus on personalities of the candidates will kind of obscure policy. But, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. I think you can you can meld the two. 
Hmm. Daniel, what do you think? I mean, I mean, there certainly seems to be less vision from either of the major parties, and in many ways the election is a referendum on who you, who you dislike the least, Scott Morrison or, or Anthony Albanese. Do you think that there are parallels with the last election in the United States, for example, where it was Trump versus I'm not Trump? Well, I mean, I, unfortunately, I think democracies all over the world are in this place where uh, many people are voting against a candidate as opposed to for a candidate. And, yeah. and so, it, it, you know, I think it relates to all the issues around trust and engagement that you're seeing in democracies all over the world. So I do think it's similar in that regard. But one of the really big distinct differences about Australia is because of compulsory voting, you don't have candidates who need to just enrage the base to get them to vote and go to the polls. Participation rates in France in the last election were just were really low. Um, the United States has had, you know, greater turnout in the past couple of elections, in part because everyone has been so outraged. And so the system here, I think, actually kind of pushes to the middle and pushes to, to you know, you can be boring in Australia and still win an election. And, and so, you know, I do think that that's a particular element of Australia. And I think you see it in the way the campaigns are run, you know, where you also have candidates, for example, who can not show up for debates like Frydenberg was just doing uh, in Melbourne. And so in some ways, there's a lot of benefits to the way the Australian system forces everyone to participate. But in other ways, it creates kind of a very particular, um, almost lukewarm <laughs> element to, to the way the whole system functions, I think. And I suppose we're seeing that reflected in the criticism that what we're observing in this election is a battle of ideas without the ideas. Um, yeah, I mean, as, as you said, there's not a ton of big vision here, right? And so, you know, there's not, there's not, you know, rousing speeches of rhetoric. There's not arguments about what Australia's role should be in the world or, you know, how class has been changed by the past 30 years of boom and what that means for not just inflation, but for the culture and identity of the country. None of those big questions uh, or policies to affect any of those big questions are really being discussed. It's it's a campaign that's being fought in, in the sort of like incremental margins of gaffes and mistakes and, you know, what you would say if it was a basketball game in small ball, <laughs> you know, and so that's that's sort of what's going on. It's not that it's devoid of ideas, it's that the big ideas are not a big part of the conversation. So, so how do you cover that in a fair and balanced way without serving up, you know, endless flavorless slop to, to media consumers, Damien? Ah, but, you know, I mean, I think it's a really good question. I, I, there, was a, there was something that, um, there was a piece that the Sydney Morning Herald did recently, which was kind of laying out the, the issues that matter and the races to watch, like really kind of functional, explanatory journalism, but that I thought worked pretty well. And, you know, even if there are marginal differences, they have to be pointed out on policy to give people a sense of, okay, well, if I vote for this party or this leader or another, what's going to happen? And so I thought that was pretty good. You know, before I came on this morning, I did the vote compass on the ABC, oh, yes. which I found less satisfying this time than I did last time around when I saw it. I felt like there was sort of a lack of detail even there <laughs> once I got to the results, to be honest. So I think it just speaks to just how great a challenge it is. I mean, one thing that I, you know, I've seen a little bit of, but I do wonder if there's more to be done, is just stories kind of from the ground, from communities, and a little less focus on kind of the politics in the the actual candidates in some ways. Like to some degree, an election, as Michael said, is kind of a referendum on a given leader and on the state of the country. And I think one way to deal with an election where the candidates, you know, are not saying such exciting things is to really do a deep dive 
on what the impact of the past few years have been and what, you know, what it could look like if it was something else. Mm. And Michael, what do you think? I mean, if reporters push politicians on the campaign trail to, you know, to talk about policy nuance or difference, they're invariably accused on social media, at least of being, of, you know, of indulging advocacy journalism. Is there a middle road? Well, I mean, I, I don't know how useful really those kind of uh, campaign interviews really tend to be. I mean, I don't know how much like policy nuance you're going to get on them, but I think you can still, as a journalist, really dig into the policy differences between the two uh, parties. You know, I think, first of all, we should say that part of the reason why we haven't had kind of grand visions, you know, from either side uh, so far is because it's been a bit of a strategic, I think, uh, maneuver by labor to kind of make themselves like a very small target, to not put out the type of grand vision that, you know, or even vision that, you know, arguably cost them at the last election, but rather to make it a, a kind of a referendum on Scott Morrison, who, you know, I think polls have shown has a higher kind of negative uh, rating than certainly he used to. So that's, that's a bit of a strategic uh, maneuver on their part to mm. kind of make themselves a small target. I think that's contributing. But, you know, I think we're starting to see some some real serious policy differences. Um, I think, you know, with the Solomon Islands, for example, the past uh, week or two, you know, that's really forced uh, some kind of discussion despite the campaign about what the different visions are for Australia and its role in the Pacific and, and how this uh, situation should have been handled. So I think there are ways as a journalist, uh, maybe not, you know, quizzing people about certain unemployment figures, uh, you know, at campaign stops, but rather digging into those policy differences and, and what they mean for the country and, and for the region. That one was kind of convenient, though, wasn't it? I mean, there was an event, the Solomon Islands signed an agreement with China that provoked a discussion about Pacific strategy. You know, in the absence of those kind of events in a campaign context to trigger those sorts of conversations, what what should reporters be doing? How should they be handling the issue of of policy, or the finer points of policy? I, I think you still, I think you still can dig into the the limited policy differences that the parties have laid out. I mean, you know, I think you can, as Damien mentioned, there hasn't been much discussion of of class and inequality and how that's changed over the past thirty years. I think you know, labor has stripped away some of their more progressive uh, policies to make themselves a small target. So of course, you know, as journalists, you can, you know, dig into what that means. Uh, is there really kind of a, a different vision for uh, addressing inequality? You know, Albanese has laid out some, uh, some policy platforms on TAFE and funding and things like that. So I think, you know, you don't necessarily need to get some type of gotcha answer at a, at a campaign event to dig into the differences and and the policies and what they might what they might mean. Mm. So I mean it's interesting that you bring up that gotcha issue because a lot was made obviously in the first and second week of the campaign with the stumble by Anthony Albanese. How would or wouldn't that have played out in the United States during a presidential election, Damien? I mean, I think it would have played out somewhat in a similar fashion. I mean, when Biden made gaffes, that was big news. When Kamala Harris makes gaffes when she travels overseas, you know, it, it gets a fair bit of coverage. But, you know, one of the things that I've often said about Australian media is, is to what extent is it kind of 
over-resourced in the area of covering sort of institution, institutional politics and what politicians say, as opposed to other kinds of coverage. So I think the difference in the United States and some other countries is that may be a small fire, but there would also be a lot of context around that that would maybe keep it sort of in, in perspective to a greater extent, whereas here, it's the whole story, you know? And so the questions that you're asking about what can journalists do beside this are questions that still need to continue to be asked and that, you know, I think the leaders of news organizations also need to think about in terms of, well, what's the correct resourcing that we have? You know, how many people do we want focused on covering a candidate or how many stories do we want on what candidates say versus the issues versus what's happening in the communities versus the things they're not saying. So, okay, so if they don't have a policy about X, that doesn't mean you don't write about it. If maybe there's a whole series of stories to be done about the giant policy questions that nobody's talking about. Um, you know, I think there are creative ways to approach this that are, are still kind of being explored. Yeah, but that didn't happen, did it? In the, at least not in the first or second week when that gaffe happened. It was like the media was entirely focused on it, what it meant, what the how it would reflect in the polls. It almost seemed obsessive. Did it seem that way to you as well? Uh, I mean, it, it did, frankly, a little bit. But but it was also the beginning of the campaign season and. Politics reporters, like I said, there's a lot of politics reporters in Australia, and you know, any group of politics reporters tends to talk to each other and talk to themselves with their coverage in ways that are perhaps problematic, as others have said. So I don't think it's unique to Australia by any means. But the issue is that some of the other kinds of reporting hadn't sort of come out yet at that point. And so it just it just felt like that was the only thing to discuss. And so mm -hmm. I think it's gotten better over the course of the campaign. I think there's a lot more coverage now that goes beyond that. And I think the criticisms that kind of arose have probably suggested to, to various reporters and editors that, hey, maybe we should find a way to, to do more than just that. Um, but I do think at the beginning, it did feel it did feel a bit obsessive to me. But but, you know, again, I don't know that it would have been any different in Washington. And we'll see, you know, in 2024, <laughs> if it is. Yeah, Michael, what do you think? Would it have been any different in Washington? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I think maybe it depends on the candidate, because obviously, you know, when Donald Trump was president, he had an amazing skill or knack of kind of brushing off any type of uh, outrageous comment or gaffe and, and kind of moving on, you know, powering through the news cycle and, and generating some other type of news to, uh, to change uh, the headlines. So, you know, I, I do think that here in Australia, certainly with that Albanese gaffe, it did seem like it kind of took up all the oxygen in the room for a few days uh, to a surprising extent. Mm. You know, I, I do think, thankfully, with um, not thankfully, but with the you know the the, the kind of pushback from uh, Adam Bant, the Greens leader, you know his kind of viral uh, comeback. I think you know it it did remind people that there's a bit more uh, at stake here, and that uh, that journalists should be kind of asking some bigger questions as well. Yeah. Well, the other issue that's taken up a lot of oxygen is the Morrison government in this tussle internally and externally over trans women in sport. I mean, it feels like a very confected issue, but it's obviously tapping into a wider culture war that the government would like to fight. Jacqueline Maley of the Sydney Morning Herald recently wrote an interesting piece, and, and she, she noted that it all seemed very out of place in an Australian federal election campaign. But I'm wondering whether from, you know, a US perspective, whether that's just pretty mundane politicking at the end of the day. Damien? 
I mean, I don't know that it's mundane politicking. I think culture war issues have become such a dominant part of American political campaigns. And to some degree, I think what you see here is a kind of leeching of that into the in, into what's happening here. I mean, for better or worse, you know, what happens in the United States does kind of, you know, drift into other places, including Australia. I mean, you've got more misinformation in this campaign that in some ways is almost cut and pasted from the United States where people are claiming, for example, that there are Dominion voting machines being used in Australia, even though all the ballots are paper. So, you know, I think this is just another example of, and especially on the conservative side, you know, trying to use cultural issues as a way to kind of differentiate themselves and, and, and stir people up into a sense of kind of cultural threat and a sense of, you know, there's, there's a sense of kind of being enraged in order to engage. And so I, I think that's what's playing out here. And mm -hmm. to some degree, it's just taking a cue from American conservatives. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I do agree that I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, it totally fits in the same way here as it does in the United States. It does, it does feel a little bit imported uh, in a way that, you know, I'm not sure feels quite as, as natural as it might in the US, which has had these kinds of debates since the 90s, at least. Michael, do you see this debate about trans sports people as an aberration or, or are Australian politicians catching up on, on where American conservative politics at least is, is currently at? Yeah, I, mean, I think like, like Damien said, I think a lot of it has to do with kind of the kind of shared uh, media you know, scape that we now have with uh, everything kind of being available uh, online. You know, you have... Fox News echoing on Sky News and and on you know YouTubers kind of in both countries influencing each other and and obviously Facebook you know making these types of issues kind of global ones but you know it's it's a bit of a risky strategy and I I, I don't know I'm, as a journalist I'm curious how it's going to play out for the coalition because um, you know I was in rural New South Wales recently for a story and talking to people and asking them about some other issues. And several of them mentioned this trans uh, kind of discussion or debate, and, and they were kind of fired up over it. And so I think the coalition, in a way, perhaps is almost cutting its losses in, in some of these uh, inner city kind of more moderate electorates, uh, mm -hmm. where they're facing some, uh, you know, climate focused uh, independence. You could say that, you know, perhaps their strategy is to kind of focus more on these culture war issues because those electorates might be lost, but they think that this bigger culture war trans discussion is going to help them hold on to or pick up some seats elsewhere. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it, it, I'm curious how that'll play out. Um, but it, I mean, it does seem a little bit out of place uh, and, and certainly maybe not an import from America, but certainly an echo of what's going on in the U.S. The only thing I would add, too, is the one thing that makes it Australian is that it's, it's about sports, right? So it's not just about, like, in the United States, it's about transgender bathrooms. That was the big issue, at least at the beginning in that argument. Whereas mm -hmm. here, you know, getting Australians to talk about sports is never difficult. And so, you know, now if you're injecting some politics into something like that, as we saw Morrison do with Djokovic and the COVID issue when he came for the Australian Open, you know, they seem to be betting on that as a way to kind of get people stirred up. Yeah, so really understanding the zeitgeist and tapping into it in a very effective way. Possibly. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm with Michael. I sort of think that it's going to be interesting to see uh, whether this resonates. I can see it working in some communities, but, you know, at their core, Australians have a long reputation for being pragmatic and kind of seeing through things that are confected, as you said. And so the question is whether or not they view this as confected or something that's really important and vital to Australian identity.
Yeah, and they also have a, a long and an ingrained history of rooting for the underdog. And so they don't like people, they don't like particular groups of people being picked on. Um, I wonder whether either of you think that this could actually backfire. Yeah, it could. I mean, I, you know, I think that um, I have young kids and, and the degree to which this stuff is discussed, uh, you know, in, in among kids these days is much more common. And so, you, you know, part of if this is sort of viewed as picking on people who are different and especially picking on younger people who are different, who are more vulnerable, then I, I don't think that necessarily plays very well. Mm. Okay, so, um, you know, if political discourse goes down the American road, um, and I'm not arguing that this particular point about trans people, trans people in sport is one of them, but if political discourse does go down the American road, what are the key points that Australian media needs to learn from you guys? Or are we already equipped, do you think, to deal with this, Michael? Oh, wow. Well, I think that's that's a tough question. I mean, I guess... Maybe the first one, you know, that the United States has kind of learned the hard way in the past five or, or six years or so has just been to think carefully about, you know, giving airtime to misleading or outrageous claims. You know, I think the Washington Post, New York Times, other media outlets kind of had a bit of a reckoning or think about that after the 2016 election, whether, you know, some of the attention given to certain things was kind of appropriate in hindsight. But I think, you know, both of those institutions and many others have kind of made some changes and, and really have kind of dived into uh, holding politicians to account, investigating their claims, uh, you know, keeping track of misstatements, false claims. So I think, you know, the Washington Post kind of famously kept track of all of Trump's misstatements and false statements and, and tallied up, I think, over 30,000 of them in four years. So I think there are some lessons that, you know, Australia could draw from, from the United States in terms of kind of pushing back and, and investigating uh, politicians' claims. But, you know, they're also kind of very different situations. I mean, you know, Australia is a more secretive country. Political donations are, are even more secretive, perhaps, than the United States. So I think there's limits to, to the lessons that can be learned as well. Mm. Damien, uh, the New York Times um, you know, took a more critical position on Trump uh, as his term went on, and I think you're now, uh, the paper has, has decided to really uh, look very closely at what it calls the bleeding of opinion into news. How, how big a problem did that become in the first place? And in the second place, you know, how do you fix it, really, other than literally um, putting up either a firewall or, or stopping um, opinion pieces appearing? I mean, I think that's a, that's a, a challenge, you know, in journalism generally, not, not just in terms of for the New York Times, but also for readers who often have a hard time differentiating what is, to me, somewhat obviously an opinion piece versus something that's news. But, you know, we have a new executive editor, Joe Kahn, who, you know, in, a, in an interview recently was sort of talking about some of this. And one of the things he said, which I think is true, is you have to be able to hold two ideas in mind at the same time. One are people who are seriously looking to influence and threaten democracy in order to hold on to power. Uh, and then also that some of this is just politicking. And so you have to be able to, to sort of uh, you know, really go after the systemic challenges that some people are making to democracy in the United States, which are which are major threats to the to the entire system, while at the same time recognizing that not everything has to be seen through that lens. That sometimes voters do have different preferences, and I think if there's a lesson that Australian journalists could learn from the last go around of the United States is that it's really important to pay attention to the politics of grievance, 
Australia sometimes likes to pretend that there isn't very much grievance and everyone is egalitarian, and that's all great. And I think the country does a very good job of maintaining that to a, to a degree that the United States does not, frankly. But there is a lot more inequality than there used to be. There is a lot more grievance than there used to be. And that's an extremely powerful force in politics, not just in the United States, but in democracies all over the world. And so if there's one lesson, I think it's less about kind of opinion and news than it is about trying to figure out how to cover some of these legitimate sort of um, political emotions around grievance in a way that is not opinion nor necessarily judgmental, but does hold people to account and really test their assumptions about whether those grievances are justified. And then secondly, to, you know, try and figure out ways to really look at it, you know, systemically with some distance, with some analysis that doesn't veer into opinion, but that can be hard-hitting and investigative and, and clear about kind of what the real threats are to the system, um, both in Australia and just in democracies around the world. I mean, it's a crisis that's happening in a lot of places. Australia is insulated from it in a lot of ways, but, you know, it doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. And there are, there are some fault lines in this country that I'm not sure have been fully explored. But how do, I'm just wondering how you actually do that in a reporting sense without positioning reporters as advocates. Well, I don't. I mean, I don't think looking back to the to the last election, um, I think the United States. I mean, the the New York Times kind of learned that we we could have done more to sort of investigate and understand what kinds of grievances were there and how they had built up and the degree of alienation that people felt and why. Um, and I think you can do that in a way that is both empathetic and hard-hitting. You know, there was a piece that I think Binya Applebaum did, who, who, was, who used to do the, he did a bunch of pieces where he would go to places that were heavily reliant on government subsidies in the United States, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, any kind of government assistance, and then talk to people about their opposition to that assistance. And in many cases, they didn't even fully recognize how much aid and assistance they were getting from government, even as they were spouting these anti-government messages. And so something like that that juxtaposes what someone is saying from with the reality of their lives, I think is a way to play it straight and play it independent. And, and there are lots of examples like that. I think what we've tried to do with the New York Times and what I think a lot of journalists in Australia are trying to do is just figure out a way to be independent of both sides, but to also hold both sides to account. Okay. Michael, um, the New York Times is going through a period of introspection. What about the Washington Post? Has it been critically analysing and perhaps even reassessing the, the way they cover politics in particular? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think we went through certainly some kind of tough self-analysis uh, a few years ago. Um, but I think also, you know, we really found our feet, in a sense, during the Trump administration in terms of you know, finding that balance where, we, you know, I think the executive editor at the time, Marty Barron, had kind of a famous phrase that, you know, we weren't going to war with the Trump administration, we were going to work, right? That it is journalists' job to critique and hold accountable people in power, mm. whether they're, you know, from whatever party it might be. So I think, you know, those were really important formative years. And we we also have a, a relatively new executive editor, you know, his successor, Sally Busby. And I think it hasn't, there's been no sea change. I think really it's just a, a kind of doubling down on, on you know, what I think Damien, uh, you know, citing that, that Joe Kahn interview uh, put really well, right? That it's, you have to do those two things at once. You have to take very seriously and investigate the... Uh, the real threat to democracy in the United States. You know, the, the Washington Post had a really big, powerful investigation into January 6th and, and what happened. 
uh, on that day and, and how it came to be. Mm-hmm. Some of that's still unfolding, of course. But at the same time, you know, um, it is important not to kind of reduce everything to this kind of mannequin, black and white, you know, good versus evil. That there, There's lots of, yeah, there's, there are legitimate political tussles going on in the United States um, that, you know, deserve careful coverage. And that also just to kind of touch on something that Damien mentioned about covering grievances, I think. You know, that's another thing that certainly the Washington Post and, and other papers in the U.S. have have gotten perhaps better at over the years, you know, during the Trump era, because I think there was a sense that that we didn't focus enough on that in before the 2016 election, that some media were caught kind of a little flat footed by the result and not maybe understanding the zeitgeist in, in the United States. And, you know, I think um, I remember I went to a, a small town in Minnesota that had really been reshaped by the influx of unaccompanied minors and immigrants from Central America. And, you know, I think the goal there that that I was pursuing was to do just that, was to write about these types of grievances in a way that showed what those grievances were, but without giving them inappropriate voice, you know, without condoning them, but also just kind of looking at them critically. And I think there's lots of room to do that here in Australia. It certainly is. Thank you both for that. Can I just ask you before I let you go, um, Twitter, Elon Musk has this week bought Twitter for 44 billion US dollars, an eye-watering amount, and, and has said he, he believes in absolute free speech. You're both users of Twitter. Was the absence of free speech on the platform a problem that you think needed to be fixed, Damien? I mean, I don't really think this is a battle about free speech, despite what Musk says. It's really a battle for power and what kinds of speech gets favored. Lots of people can speak on Twitter, which which tweets get more attention and which ones are favored in the algorithm, you know, is still a black box that we don't fully understand. And conservatives are jumping up and down with excitement because they believe that Musk will favor their speech over liberal speech. And the left is concerned because they're afraid that he'll, that he'll do that too. So to me, you know, it's never really been about speech. It's just about power and about what Twitter and speech does on the sort of political spectrum. I mean, my feeling these days is that Americans obsess a little bit too much about speech and don't focus enough on behavior, but that's just me. <laughs> Marco, what's your take on the, on the Twitter buyout? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there's a lot of real questions to be raised about Elon Musk's claim, you know, to being a proponent of free speech. Like, if you look at his own record, there have been times in which he or his company have really kind of cracked down on on speech by employees and by others. So, you know, I think there are real questions to be asked about that claim. Um, And then, of course, you know, the big maybe a million dollar question is what will happen with Donald Trump? Will he be allowed back on Twitter? And what impact might that have on the midterm or on the presidential election? So, you know, it's, I mean, it's kind of remarkable that just the power that Twitter can have. I mean, look, it's, as a journalist, I'm in a bit of a Twitter bubble, but at the same time, you know, the thought that that one man could essentially buy something that has such a, a vast voice and make decisions that could impact elections in the U.S. and around the world, you know, is something that I think is a bit startling and maybe deserves some some thought about really if that's the best scenario. Yeah, Damien, you'd have to think that Trump would be back on the platform soon, no? You know, he said he's not going to come back, but, you know, there are plenty of times, as Michael pointed out, where he hasn't quite been totally honest. So, you know, I think you can imagine that that's definitely a possibility despite what he says. 
Right. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, well, we'll wait and see. And on that note, I'd like to thank you both for being on the program today. It was a great discussion. Thank you for your time. And hopefully we'll talk to you again very soon. Very good. Thank you. Thanks very much. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. And make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Marlene Even, and my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Monica Attard, and thank you for listening.